There's a Jewish story about a rabbi and his son. During morning prayer, the son used to leave the synagogue and wander about through the woods. He loved being alone in the forest. The rabbi was concerned about two things. One, his son was neglecting his morning prayers. And two, the forest is where wild and dangerous animals live. So the rabbi asked his son, why do you go out there in the forest alone? To find God, said the son. The rabbi said, but you don't have to go anywhere special to find God. God is the same everywhere. The son said, yes, I know, but I'm not the same. He knew that he was different when he's outdoors in nature. And we do too. We're different. It's not the same as being inside. When you go outside and when you're in nature, it's different. Nature speaks to us in a secret language. So today we hear that Jesus went out into the wilderness for 40 days. He wanted to hear the voice of God without distractions. He could have gone to the temple. He could have gone to the synagogue. But instead, he goes out to nature. Mark says that he was with the wild animals and the angels ministered to him. But the animals ministered to him too, the angels and the animals. The animals ministered to us. Last Monday, I was outdoors on a sunny day. I went out to feed the birds, but the birds fed me also. I sat in my chair for about a half an hour, watched the birds, listened to their singing. Because Jesus said, look at the birds, and I take that very seriously, like a command, like don't commit adultery, don't kill, look at the birds. It's not advice. It's a command. Look at the birds. Don't miss it. Because they tell you not to worry. God takes care of the birds. God's going to take care of you. We've all had an experience of animals ministering to us. Many of us have pets that comfort us and love us. Some of you have service dogs that wait on you. Therapy dogs go to the hospital and they heal patients. Sometimes deer make pastoral visits to your backyard. My sister was telling me that uh, recently a, a deer gave birth to a fawn right on her back patio and left her alone, left the, left the fawn alone the whole day by herself because she knew it was a safe place. About 10 years ago after mass, a woman named Miriam said to me, my horse died. Do you do funerals for horses? So I went out to the horse farm <laughs> in Churchville about 40 people showed up for the funeral. And I learned about her horse. Her horse's name was Amber D. She was 24 years old. She was a beloved horse. And during those 24 years, Miriam, the owner, had a car accident and she had a very severe brain injury. And it took her two years to recover from the brain injury. She was very depressed, very su suicidal. But every time she visited her horse, Amber D, the horse kicked its feet and threw its head around and was so excited to see her. So the horse's kindness and gentleness healed the owner, Miriam. On the way out of the horse farm, another person said to me, tomorrow I have to put down my horse. Could you give it last rites? <laughs> what am I, the horse chaplain? <laughs> so I took out my oil, had everybody touch the horse, and we prayed, and the horse died very peacefully the next day. So animals minister to us, although some animals are scary. Jim and Julie Smith took their kids camping in the Adirondacks. They set up a tent, and then they went up the mountain for a hike. They came back. The tent was slit down the middle. They could smell urine, 
and there were claw marks on the books they were reading. One time I slept out on Yellowstone Park by myself. I put my sleeping bag right out there. And during the night, some big animal went across my chest. I don't know if it was a moose, an elk, I have no idea. One time in Mexico, there were three of us, and we decided to sleep on the car, one on the front, one on the top, one on the back, because we were worried about the tarantulas. Last week, an 85-year-old woman walking her dog in Florida was killed by an alligator. In the wilderness, it's kind of dangerous sometimes. Animals can be dangerous. And in the desert, Jesus probably had jackals growling at him, predatory birds swooping, swooping down on him, poisonous snakes hissing. When you're outdoors, you encounter certain risks. You might get bit, bitten by a mosquito or by a, beer, by a bee. You might encounter a snowstorm or pelting rain or a fierce storm. You might slip and fall on the ice. When I was walking down the Grand Canyon one day, there were signs all over the place warning us how many people died of de dehydration, exhaustion, be careful. When I slept outside in Keystone, Iowa, I was on a cornfield with my sleeping bag, and we discovered the next day that a flash flood went right through there where we were sleeping. A man visited Antarctica recently, and he got stuck in a blizzard. He said, Antarctica is the kind of place that doesn't want you there. <laughs> so being in nature can be risky. The wilderness lets you know that you're not in control. Now, people have different names for being the wilderness. The 12-step program calls it powerlessness. Buddhists call it emptiness. Franciscans call it poverty. The author of Jonah calls it the belly of the whale. Mystics call it the dark night of the soul. Christians call it the way of the cross. And Jews call it the desert. The desert, you're in the desert when somebody dies, somebody you love is taken away from you, and you're in the desert. You're not in control. You can't fix it. You can't control it. You can't blame anybody for it. All you can do is bleed and cry. So being in the desert, being in nature, is where you are powerless. It's both scary and enticing. Why is it enticing? because it takes you outside of your comfort zone and it leads you to surrender. And that's where you meet God, through surrender. When Sarah, in Genesis, when Sarah threw Abraham's mistress, Hagar, out of the house, she went out and wandered in the desert. She came by a creek and she sat down and cried and cried and cried. And God sent her an angel. It was the first time an angel appeared in the Bible, out in the desert, to comfort the mistress. And the angel said, don't be afraid, we'll take care of this. It's the first time those words, don't be afraid, were mentioned in the Bible, followed by 365 more times, don't be afraid. And maybe that's the message for you today, whatever you're going through, don't be afraid. That happened in the desert, and when Jesus was in the desert, an angel ministered to him too. Adele Gunlock, a woman who died of cancer, told me, I'm not afraid to cry, because only then can God wipe my tears away. When we're out in, the, in nature, we learn wisdom. The Book of Wisdom defines wisdom this way. Wisdom is to love life. Wisdom is to love life. We need to love life in all its forms, 
plants and animals and oceans and trees. If we don't love nature, we're not going to protect it. We're not going to care for it. Our climate crisis is so severe because we are disconnected from the web of life. And the first step is to get reacquainted with nature, to enter this deep conversation with the sacred earth. The wilderness is a time-honored place for sorting things out. The Jews spent 40 years trying to get the voice of the Pharaoh out of their heads. They needed to unlearn the voice of oppression and domination and patriarchy. And they needed to hear a new voice, the voice of God calling them to a new life. Jesus spent 40 days in the desert and he needed to hear a voice of God calling him to something new, calling him to his mission. All of Jesus' temptations were about his identity. About his identity. Right before this story of being in the desert, Jesus was baptized, and he heard these beautiful words from God, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. You are my beloved. But he spent the rest of his life battling the temptation not to believe that because people were calling him a drunk and a glutton, a friend of sinners, a liar, a lawbreaker. Religious leaders were telling him that he's misleading the people. They even called him the prince of demons. So he had to struggle with that, believing that he still was the beloved child. We have the same problem. God tells us we're beautiful, we're good, we're worthy, but we doubt it all the time. We put ourselves down, we feel shame, we feel guilt. We need to remember we're not what other people say about us. We're not what other people say about us. So Jesus' first temptation, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you are the Son of God. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're not the beloved. How can you be God's beloved and be hungry? The Jews asked the same question out in the desert. How can God love us when there's nothing here to eat? We wonder the same thing. How can I be God's beloved and get cancer? How can I be God's beloved and my spouse gets Alzheimer's? How can I be God's beloved child and have these disabilities? Jesus answers, it's not by bread alone that we live. Even if I'm hungry, even if I'm pain, in pain, I still believe I'm God's beloved. The second temptation. The devil takes him up on top of the temple. He says, throw yourself down, and just as you're getting to the bottom, God's going to scoop you up, and you'll be great. Everybody will clap for you. You'll be like a magician. That's if you are the son of God. Maybe you're not. What if God doesn't catch you? Are you still the beloved? If the authorities hate you, are you still the beloved? If they arrest you and torture you, are you still going to call yourself beloved? We have the same temptation. How can I be a beloved child and not be kept safe? How can I be the beloved and get in an accident? Or my child dies? Or my marriage falls apart? Jesus answers, I won't put the Lord God to the test. Even if I'm not saved, even if I lose my life, I still believe I'm the beloved child. The third temptation was maybe the hardest for Jesus. The devil took him up on a mountain and showed him all the nations of the, of the world, which would be the Roman Empire. And the devil says, you can have all this. You can overthrow the Roman Empire, and all this wealth will be yours. Just think what you can do with that money. 
as long as this one thing happens, and that is that you worship me, that you bow to me. All you have to do is bow to the God of greed, the God of violence, the God of power, the God of white supremacy, the God of domination. So we are entering 40 days of Lent as of today. The three disciplines of Lent are prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. First, prayer. What can we do? You can enter the desert anytime you want. Just sit down without a smartphone, without headphones, without TV or internet, without any electronic devices, and just say, God, I'm ready. Turn the candle on, get a cup of coffee or whatever. You can go to Ellison Park, Menden Ponds Park. You can come to daily mass. We have great daily masses here, in person or online. Do something with your prayer. For fasting, Reverend Myra told us on Ash Wednesday, we can do the traditional fast from sweets and desserts and meat. Give up your scotch, give up your TV. That's good. Those are good starters. But we can also do things like give up gossip, give up judgments, give up putting people down. We can fast from worry, from complaining. We can fast from losing patience. A man out of, coming out of the first mass today said, I'm going to give up fear. I'm way too fearful. We white people can fast from being fragile. A big temptation for us white people is to avoid facing the present moment of racial reckoning. To use our white privilege in saying, I'm tired of hearing about Daniel Prude and police violence and racism in Rochester. I've had enough of that. Makes me feel uncomfortable, makes me feel guilty. Well, our comfort becomes more important than the suffering of the people of color. So how about just us giving up that fragility and giving up that comfort and read some books on racial equity? So that's the second one, fasting, prayer and fasting. The third one, third discipline is almsgiving. We can make a donation to the Black Community Focus Fund. That's a form of reparation to the Black community of Rochester. We could do something positive for a child in Lent. 48% of children in Rochester are in poverty. Maybe focus on a child. Do something positive for a child in the next 40 days. We can put food in the pantry. There's a little pantry outside of our church over there. Or we can go to Mike and Jane Bleeg's food shelf on Mount Hope Avenue, put some food in there for the people. We can be mindful of the poverty around us. The Greek writer Nikos Katsanzakis tells a story about a monk. A monk dreamed of making a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And there he would walk around the Holy Sepulchre three times, kneel, and return to his monastery a new man. And so through the years, he saved his money that he got from alms, and finally he took his $100 and set out for a 500-mile journey to Jerusalem. After going just a few steps, he met a poor beggar. Where are you going? said the beggar. I'm going to Jerusalem. By the grace of God, I'm going to walk around the Holy Sepulchre three times. I'm going to kneel and going to come back a new man. The beggar said, I hope you have enough money. It's a long way. Praise God, I've got 100 bucks for the trip. The beggar said, can I ask you a crazy question? He said, I have a wife. I've got some hungry kids back home. I'm looking for food to keep them from starving. 
would you consider giving me the $100? Walk around me three times? <laughs> Kneel and go back a new man? The monk kind of fidgeted with his walking stick for a long time. And then, with divine absurdity, he took the $100 and he gave it to the man. He walked around him three times, he knelt, and he returned home. We don't have to travel hundreds of miles to go to a holy place. The sacred is right outside our door. Christ is always waiting for us in the poor and the hungry. Christ is always waiting for us in this sacred earth all around us. Enjoy your 40 days.